Amen. All right, we're going to be in Exodus 33 today, so if you'd open your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we've got free ones in the back. By all means, grab one, we'll just think you're getting coffee. But I wanted to begin by uh, reading out of Psalm 86, actually, which has something to do with uh, the sermon because, well, it's about Jesus, but um, really, Chris uh, is the one, I, I prayed for his daughter, I'm going to pray for her again uh, this service just so everyone can be reminded to pray for her. Uh, he's got two little twin daughters, cute as can be. Uh, they were born uh, earlier than they should have been, and so as a result, their immune systems aren't as strong as they um, probably should be. And so Karis um, is right now at Children's Hospital and has been there, I think, for a few days. And um, she, uh, it began with all kinds of things, but it was kind of an pneumonia type of deal, and she had uh, an abscess in her lung, I believe, that I don't know if they had to drain it or not, but uh, she's down there kind of uh, doing better, but um, without question, if you saw Chris, he's a lot more tired than he's been because he's been going back and forth with his bride down to Children's Hospital in Seattle for the last uh, four or so days, and that's where he's headed right now. So uh, I'm going to pray for them, and I was reminded um, before I read Psalm 86, well, let me read Psalm 86, and then I'll, I'll tell you um, what else uh, I'm just feeling right now. Uh, Psalm 86, just the first seven verses. Um, I've kind of made it a practice in the last uh, few months to pray the Psalms. And, uh, you know, sometimes you sit and pray. I know this never happens to anyone here, but you sit and, like, kind of, like, don't know what to pray. Uh, it's been helpful for me to start just by praying a Psalm and just start uh, praying God's words back to Himself because they're all really uh, to glorify Him anyway. But Psalm 86 um, was good uh, for me recently and, and is germane to the sermon today. But it says this. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly, and save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. And I just want to remind, I guess, everyone or just proclaim that God is good. Um, I met with a lot of people even this morning just hearing about people losing their jobs. People's jobs are changing. Um, The pressures of just going to a new building and all things that might happen with the church. And it's like one of those moments where... um, your faith in God, either personally or corporately, begins to waver a little bit because you're making all your decisions thinking on everything you see here, the horizontal world. And uh, we must remind ourselves constantly, because that's our tendency, that we uh, are people of faith that don't make decisions based off everything that we see, but what we trust God has already said in His Word. So I'm going to pray for everyone, including myself. Uh, in particular Chris's daughter, uh, to remind ourselves that despite what we see, the brokenness of the world, um, God is good. And I know that because when Jesus died on the cross, it was the most terrible, horrible, horrific thing that ever could be imagined, and yet it was the most glorifying and honoring thing possible. And so I know that though I don't understand suffering and tough times, I know that they do glorify God. So I'm going to pray. Father God, I just thank you for everyone that's gathered here today and those who are not. I lift up, Father, in particular, little Karis. I just ask for uh, all of us, Father, for you, your spirit, to remind us to pray for her, that she, Father, will be healed, uh, that she will be free from disease and from whatever condition, Father, she is suffering from. And in the midst of this time, Father, not only she be comforted, but her mom will be comforted, in particular by Chris and his ability to lead, empowered by you, Father, to trust and to proclaim that trust in you. Help us to rejoice, Father, in her healing. May you glorify yourself through that entire experience, and may we rejoice with them because of what you've done. And I pray, Father, for anyone who can hear my voice, whether through podcasts or hear, Father, for those who are suffering from job loss, for those who are just uncertain about how things are going to turn out, that you will just break us, Father, to the point where we desperately depend and trust that you are in control. That, Father, you will uh, increase our faith, if you will. Help us to see with eyes of our heart and not just to judge all things with the eyes in our head. Father, help us to trust you and to know 
deeply in our soul that you are good, that you want to pour out your grace, and that you are in control of all things. May you be glorified by all we say and do today. Amen. Can't be reminded enough that, that God is good. All right, well, Exodus 33, now we get to talk about sin. And I don't mean to talk about sin that much. It's just that Exodus has a lot to do with broken people. And uh, we don't talk about sin probably enough in our world. And uh, hopefully we'll end with and speak about God's goodness despite our sin. But two weeks ago we saw God grant Moses, as we went through Exodus 32, uh, appeal to show mercy to his people. And to not kill them, if you will. And I think that it's in essence uh, a groom, because we've been talking about the kind of these marriage terms of God marrying his people and speaking of Israel as his bride. So in essence what you've got is a man, a groom, catching his bride, sleeping with someone else pretty much on their wedding day. And God's best man, as he is inflamed with anger, as many of us would understand, pretty much talks him down from taking a shotgun and blowing away everyone in sight and starting all over with him. And so Moses is, is interceding, if you will, and pleading for mercy, and God agrees. And so instead, he tells the groom, I'll go down and take care of it. Don't worry. And so he goes down to take care of the other man if you will. And as angry Moses goes down the mountain with Joshua who follows along, he walks upon a scene that's just despicable because this is a groom who has done nothing but love and cherish and give everything to his bride and they are committing adultery in front of everyone and joyfully singing about it. And so he throws down the marriage contract, the license if you will, and it breaks in front of them. He takes or proceeds to turn their God that they created, this kind of pseudo-groomsman, and makes it into what amounts to human waste. Then he confronts his brother, who was supposed to be taking care of everything, and his brother makes excuses and, and all kinds of justifications of why he didn't. He draws a line in the sand, says either get on God's team or you go on the other team, and then he kills, by the hands of the Levites, 3,000 people, to clean the camp of sin. And satisfied that things have been somewhat set right, he goes back up the mountain, hoping that God will forgive those who have survived, those who have repented. And we saw at the end of last week that God refuses Moses' plea for forgiveness for the people. He refuses his his next intercession to have relationship with him. And he says, nope, these people are going to die. They may not die immediately, but they're going to die. And he sends a plague, which I think is very interesting. We don't have time to spend on it. But he sends a plague on the survivors at the very end of 32 to, I think, show us that even when people repent, there are consequences for our sin, which is difficult, but true. And so in the entire... Chapter of 32, you have this God and Israel relationship going on where God is being merciful and Israel is being rebellious and they make their own cult and God doesn't destroy them, although he has all the right in the world to. And then we get into Exodus 33 and the focus of the chapter shifts from the faithless kind of to the faithful guy, Moses. And it starts to explore that relationship that God had with Moses and it's amazing it's a relationship that's unheard of or unseen by but a few prophets, and in particularly in Jesus. And he has this relationship that he calls a friendship, where he talks face-to-face, and his ability to intercede for a guilty people allows him to renew the promise that he made. And that's the conversation we see today. And the renewal, or God's kind of second change of mind, figuratively speaking, to fulfill what he said he would do in having a relationship, has nothing to do with the change of heart of Israel. It has nothing to do with that. And it has everything to do with a God who is so good, he restrains himself from killing them, and he loves them when they are not lovable, when they do everything to not love him. And so we begin in chapter 33, verse 1. One, where we have 
Moses' kind of last conversation with God before he goes down the mountain to see the people after he said, I'm not going to forgive them. And in verse 33, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, saying, quote, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from the Mount Horeb onward. So the first thing that God tells Moses is like, leave. Leave Sinai. They've spent about ten months at the mountain where the commandments were given, where Moses went up, where a big cloud and lightning and fire was covering the mountain. God's presence was there. And he basically says, leave my presence, similar to probably what happened in the Garden of Eden. When he kicked out Adam and Eve out of the, out of the Garden of Eden and said, get out. And so he tells them to leave Sinai. And the second thing he says, though, in the midst of all that, he tells Moses that I'm still going to keep my promises. I'm still going to keep the promises that I made to your forefathers, Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And the comforting thing, I think, for all of us, or anyone who's sinned, which includes all of us, is that though sin grieves and angers God, Though it makes him sorrowful and though it does justly create a situation where we should be destroyed, it does not prevent God from fulfilling his plans. Our sin does not change God's agenda. And so what he tells is that, or shows, is that he is the true husband, of which I wish more husbands were like, the true groom that basically commits to his bride based on himself not based off the behavior of his bride. We don't get that sense of commitment covenant in today's marriages. We like to play the blame game and say all the reasons why I'm leaving you, why I should leave you, you haven't loved me, you haven't respected me, whatever. The vow that God made was predicated on himself. And for his own glory, he will make good on his promises. And so though we are faithless, he remains faithful. Though we break our word, God doesn't. And though we fail, He typically, will always, will not allow His people to fall completely. So sin doesn't change God's agenda, but it certainly changes the relationship, as it would in any marriage. God is still, in some sense, connected with His people, but because they've sinned against Him, the relationship has been separated. It would be like as if I sinned against my own bride. She'll still be married to me, But without question, our relationship will not be full of joy, will not be full of blessing, and will probably not be full of peace for some time. Still married, still got the ring on in some sense, but without question, there's a breakdown. And so God here tells Israel, look, I will fulfill my promises, I will give you the land. In other words, I will still bless you at some level. I will clear the land for you, so I'm going to fight for you still, even though you are an adulteress. And I will actually protect you as I send my angel through when you are going into the land. But I will not go with you. I will set up a home for you. I will kick out all the mean neighbors. I will set up a really great security detail. But I will not live with you. It will be a relationship where I am loving you almost out of duty one of commitment about or to do what is right versus probably what I feel. And we should be amazed, at least I'm amazed, that God doesn't call it quits right there. I mean, any guy in that situation, imagine on your wedding day, you get married and you find out your bride has been sleeping with Uncle Bucky right after the ceremony and you catch them, what would you do? 
If nothing else, you would annul it right there, and no one would blame you. Whoa, whatever. I mean, gosh, it's only been 30 minutes since you sealed the deal, and look, done. No one would say, yeah, of course, but God doesn't do that. I don't know if we can even fathom that God doesn't do that to us. Guess what? We're the whores in the story. Okay? We're not the good guys. And that's how he treats us. And he says, I will not go with you. And even the fact that he says, I will not go with you, the fact that he separates himself is an act of love. He says, look, you guys are a stiff-necked people. You are stubborn. In other words, this isn't a one-time thing. This is you broken at the core. You not were a stiff-necked people. You are. You are have a character flaw. And if we go along and I go with you, my guess is you're going to sin again. And when you do, it's going to take everything within me to not kill you. Because that's what I'm going to have to do when I see the sin. And we're not going to go through the whole Moses interceding over and over again. Okay, there they did it again, Moses. Now, God, not, we're not doing that. So I'm going to separate myself because I love you. And it's best for me to be apart from you. And it's best for you, too. Because you don't want to die, I'm guessing. And so when the people hear this, because this has been the whole plan of Exodus. We're being released from Egypt to be in relationship with our God. We're a different kind of people. He loves us. He's going to dwell with us. And in one moment, one event, it's all undone. 30 chapters, probably a couple years at this point of time, all undone in one event. Oh, that we actually approach sin that way and could see the consequences, that seeing those consequences will make us decide differently, but we don't. Oftentimes we know the consequences and we still go through it. But one event ends it for all, and it's ruined. And like a woman that has a diamond ring, you ever seen a woman that gets the diamond ring for an engagement? She's just glowing, showing everybody, oh, it's okay, you know, just loving it. Right? You've seen that, I'm sure. He says, take off the ring. Take off your ornaments. And the reason they put the ornaments on was because they left Egypt. And right before they left Egypt, they went to the Egyptian like, Yeah, that's a nice bracelet you got there. Here, take it. I like that necklace too. Take it. It was the symbol Egypt gave them. They were slaves. Gave them wealth. Gave them all the stuff. They used that wealth and that sign of blessing that they were redeemed people came out with left or started with nothing came out with everything they used that not only make their own god and now says get rid of it be done with it throw your engagement ring off we're done we need some time i'm not so sure about this i'm going to stay with you i'm going to protect you still but i'm separating from you and he gives a little bit of hope at the end there though and he says Take all this stuff off that I may know what to do with you. I may know. So there's some hope. Verse 7 says this. It's a little bit of a break. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, most likely his own tent, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of me. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out of the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his door and watch until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of a cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of a cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So we have a little bit of a break in the narrative. And some scholars think that Moses came down from the mountain and kind of pitched up this this tent so that he could kind of have a relationship with God, knowing that on the mountain God had given him plans for this amazing tabernacle that was not going to be built now. And so Moses, unfortunately, um, has to go back into this relationship 101 when it should have been in the center of the community. I don't necessarily think that's what's happening exactly. I do think that the following conversation takes place in this tent. But we get confused a little bit in the Old Testament because you have the tent of meeting, 
And then you have the tabernacle, and that tabernacle is later called the tent of meeting, and it's sometimes just called the tent. And so to clarify a little bit, I think what was happening is pre-Sinai, up into Sinai, and even to the plans of the tabernacle, this is how God interacted with Moses. He would take a tent and he would set it up outside of the camp. And as they were watching that relationship with him outside the camp, the pillar would come down and they would worship God knowing that there was still a separation there. And Moses, I don't think, goes down and starts doing this, although I think this thing's always been going on, in other words. And so he mentions this narrative kind of in the middle of this little scene, the middle of this narrative, to explain a couple things. One, I think to identify exactly what the relationship with Israel is now, specifically the relationship with him and sinners, and also what his very unique relationship is with Moses, because Moses is going to call him out on some stuff that is just crazy talk in terms of a creation speaking to his creator. Here we go. Israel's relationship with God. We learn something about Israel's relationship with God. One thing we learn is that the tent outside of the camp reminded the people that God was holy, that God is completely other than them, that God, similar to the Garden of Eden, separated himself from sinners. And they, this event in Exodus 32 doesn't make them sinful. They already are sinful. Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 7 or 17, one or the other, speaks about the reason why God loved Israel. It had nothing to do with Israel. And nothing to do with them being a better people than anyone else. It had to do with his choice and his favor and his decision. Nothing based in them. And so the funny thing is that they see this tent out there. They desire without doubt to have a relationship with God. And so when Moses goes up the mountain, they so want a relationship with God in the center of their life, so to speak, they make their own. And they put this God in the center of their life. And they worship it and look at it and make sacrifice. It's a false God, but they have such a desire for this relationship. And I think the, the thing we learn is that if you begin your understanding of God, your church, your theology, all these things with a man-centered view of things, your community, your church will end up with God way on the outside. If you start with men, if you decide to start with what you want, But if you decide to center your life on God, the community will be built. Sometimes we preach stuff in our church and others that make people uncomfortable. And I would rather make you uncomfortable than make God embarrassed, if that makes sense. I am more concerned with the approval of Him than anyone else's approval. So when we make decisions as a church... Yes, we listen to the appeals of men, but we never want to get to the point where we center our decisions on men because that will build a community with God as like a backpack on our Christian faith, not actually driving it from the center. And that's the difference. Israel was characterized, their relationship now, because they had separated themselves because of their sin, is characterized by a relationship that's occasional. Their worship of God was at a distance, and it only occurred every so often, similar to someone whose entire worship experience, their entire Christian faith centers on events and Sunday morning and gatherings. That would be similar. Instead of a life characterized by a believer who is worshiping all the time. And I know we say that and some people are like, so what's that mean? You're like singing zippity-doo-dah, praise Jesus every time you're walking down the sidewalk? No, that would be interesting to see. It is the fact that your life is so centered on worshiping God that all of your decisions, your finances, your parenting, how you do your job, how you interact with people is driven by the sobering reality that you are worshiping God. That's a different way to live. And then you have Moses and his relationship with God, which is incredibly unique. We learn something about this relationship as he's the only one that God spoke to from the burning bush, the only one he invited into the tent, the only one who went up to Mount Sinai, the only one he had this very unique relationship with through which all men were blessed because of this one relationship. And when the Bible says that Moses spoke to him face to face, we kind of go, wait, didn't he just say he couldn't see his face? It is figurative language, and it's describing the openness of the relationship. The sobering 
way we could talk. Because I always have heard people say, you know, Jesus is my friend. And there's a funny song, if you really want to watch it on YouTube, just write, Jesus is my friend. It'll give you some good, old-fashioned laughter about some cheesy, cheesy Christian stuff. But there's a song that's like, Jesus is my friend. And it's just cheesy. Because that, for me, is like, Jesus is my friend. I mean, that sounds warm and fuzzy, but I'm like, Jesus is my Lord. That sounds like, yeah. But here, as we talk about friendship with God, he starts calling him out and speaking to him in such a way that God doesn't smite him. God actually listens to him and engages with him and dialogues with him. And it's amazing because in the next passage here, beginning in verse 12, Moses says like you like five, seven times. You did this. You said this. You're doing this. Like calling out God. Here he goes. Moses chapter 33 verse 12. Moses said to the Lord. So most likely this conversation is happening in the tent. Because that's how they've been doing it. Because they didn't build the tabernacle, Moses goes back down. He's sitting in the tent, talking to God. No one else is hearing it. And they know there's a conversation going on. This is what it goes like. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, You say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet, you have said, Quote, God, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor, as you said, I have, in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Kind of throws that in. Yeah, I like that, right? And he said, God speaking, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. I can't believe God doesn't say, as Moses begins to talk, dude, are you taking a tone with me? I mean, are, you, are, you, are you seriously? You're seriously going to speak this way to me? Because that's, I mean, honestly, that's how I interact with my son sometimes. They start talking to me. I'm like, whoa, we're not having this conversation until that tone changes. But he doesn't. He allows Moses to keep pushing. And he says, I want to know what your intentions are for this people. Because you told me to lead these people, but you haven't told me if any of them are coming with me. And now you told me you're not coming with me. How's this going to work out? You haven't guaranteed me anything. And so he begins to kind of discuss, remember what you said about me, God. Now, I realize, God, that there's nothing good inside of me. He doesn't like say, God, I'm really great. He says, you've shown me favor. You were the one that chose to speak with me. You were the one that said, I'm going to bless you and have a relationship with you. You know there ain't anything good in me, so you have said this. By your own declaration, you have said, back at the burning bush, that you would be with me to lead these people. You said you know me by name. You said that you show me favor. If this is true, God, and show me your ways. Show me how this is going to happen. Show me what you're going to do. Let me see what it is that's going to make this possible. And I love that God doesn't just blow them out of the tent, doesn't freak out, doesn't unleash like he justly could, but that he invites this conversation and this discussion as long as it doesn't get to a place of judge and jury. See, God is more than interested in having conversation with us and dialogue with us and that's challenging, asking questions and, and pointing to His Word and saying, this is the truth. You've said this. But when it gets to a point where you start telling Him how it should go, telling Him He's wrong, I love that Moses doesn't do that. He says, teach me if this is true. Show me how this is going to happen. Show me how are you going to make this possible? See, it's almost as Moses assumes that I don't fully see what's happening here. So I'm going to trust that, that you know what you're doing. I'm going to trust that you're in control. I'm going to trust that you're not surprised by the fact that I lost my job. I'm going to trust that you see all the brokenness that's about to happen. You see the unknown we're going into. I'm just asking you to show me 
if you would, how this is going to work out. Just, I trust that you know it's going to work out and that your ways are right. Just teach me your ways. And it's not even your way. You know It's not even like, show me exactly how it's going to work out. It's just teach me about you. Teach me about the ways you do things. Help me to trust you. And in the end, you realize that he's really not speaking just for himself. Because he says, almost whispering, remember, these are our people. You chose these people. You knew what they were like. Just saying. I'm just saying, God. Right? I mean, it's a funny conversation, really. And it's amazing. And then God responds. And he seems to change his mind. Moses isn't quite certain. He says, okay, I'll give you rest. And I'll go with you. What do you, what do you mean by you? Do you mean us or you? All the people or just me? Me rest, all of us rest. And so he asked him, verse 15. And he said to him, okay, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Throws that in again. Is it not in your going with us, as a demonstration of favor, so that we are distinct, I and your people? Throws it in again. From every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. It seems kind of weird that he's kind of like almost asking God to clarify what he just said. But it makes sense a little bit to make sure that he's talking about his people. But the thing that sticks out to me the most is that that first line where it says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I don't know, um, a lot of people may think this and maybe not, but how much time the elders spent on figuring out whether we should move to the next stage and go to a, a new space. We spent a lot months. This is like six months, seven months of going from space to space. And the commitment we had was not to find the best space for the church or the coolest space or whatever. It was just to make sure whatever decision we made that we were actually moving with God and not ahead of God or not away from God. I mean, how many times do we make decisions without really considering whether God's going with us in that decision. I mean, it's Moses is so dedicated to making sure I am not moving unless you're coming with me. I am not leading this people. I'm not going to move from this spot unless I know you're going with us. That's huge. If we could get to that place... Where we, it's not a matter of paralysis where I don't make any decisions because I don't know what's God. It's a matter of relationship and dialogue to know that God is actually telling you when to move, when to make a decision, what to do with our entire lives. I think so, we are so oftentimes so quick to make decisions because our culture is such that we don't want to wait for anything. I teach high school still, one more day, praise God, one more day. But we have such an instantaneous culture. If the kids can't find it on Google, it doesn't exist. They do not know what it means to crack a book and actually look at it. You say encyclopedia, like, yeah, you like Wikipedia? You know, like that, right? No, it's actually a book with pages and they're alphabetical. And, you know, it's, they don't have this concept because we have a very instant gratification culture. Get the answer, go. They don't want to wait. No one's going to tell me I can't move, right? I, I don't need permission I just go. We just decide. We move. That's not what distinguishes a believer in Jesus. A believer in Jesus is dependent upon the presence of God. So much so, they will wait. And they will meditate. And they will ask. And they will wrestle. And they will not do what seems convenient because they're not convinced God wants them to move in that direction. Even if it means like the best opportunity in the world. Just because it's the best opportunity from the world's perspective doesn't mean it's the opportunity God wants you to take. We are so convinced, like any opportunity, oh, it's an open door, it's an open door. We had lots of open doors in terms of where to go for a building. But it's like, is that open? 
Let's look in. Make sure some freak behind the door is going to you know, lop her head off or whatever. The fact is we are patient, patient, waiting for the presence of God. And the, if you're not, if you're more apt to just decide and move, that's no different than what the world does. What distinguishes a believer from a non-believer is that they practice, I believe, the presence of God. Brother Lawrence is this monk, really a layman. He wasn't good enough to be a priest, I don't think. But he wrote this really small pamphlet called Practicing the Presence of God. It's got some really good stuff in it. You can find it online. But he said something that I thought was really powerful. He said, always be with God. Do nothing, say nothing, and think nothing which may displease him. And do this without any other view than purely for the love of him and because he deserves infinitely more. Always be with God. And my fear is that many of us are always with God on Sunday between about 9 and noon. We're of, oh, yeah, with God. Or at our Bible study on Wednesday nights. Always be with God. Always conscious of His presence. Not out of fear. Out of dependence. Out of joy of knowing you're in relationship with Him. And so Moses makes that plea and God responds and says, you found favor and I will go with you as you said, with your people and I will give them rest. And he changes his mind. He renews ultimately his covenant. In the last verses here, verse 18, Moses throws out one biggie. Please show me your glory. It's kind of odd. It's kind of, it seems out of place. Like he's just like, okay, I'll do it. Show me your glory. You know, it's like, seems like might be a spiritual longing, like just really curious, like, what do you look like? But I don't think that's what he's doing here. I think in a lot of ways he's asking God to, to prove it. Put it in writing. Sign your name. Like he did on the, on the commandment. Sign your name. Show me your glory. See, the last time, God confirmed his presence through his glory was when he overcame the sin of Egypt. And God himself used those terms. He told Moses, I'm going to get glory over Egypt and I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. And he did that by wiping them out, unleashing his wrath with plagues and power and all these things. And now he wants to know, Moses, God, how I saw how you overcame the sin of of Egypt, how are you going to overcome the sin of Israel here to make this Israel here to make this possible? And I see without question that God is concerned with the sins of people or things keeping us in bondage, but most certainly this whole chapter shows me that he is even more concerned with the sin that's in us individually. Sin is not something outside of us, although we like to look at Egypt and go, something, someone, this is keeping me in bondage. Sin is in us, in our hearts. And it infects even the good things we try to do by making us prideful about them. That's how sick sin is. It makes those things which are good, sinful, and broken and by perverting them. And so he's concerned with the sin in us. But here's God's response to show me his glory. And I think it's both funny but amazing at the same time. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. And then I will take my hand, you shall see my back, and my face shall not be seen. Not only do we have a God that restrains his wrath and shows us mercy when it's not deserved. We have a God who, by his choice, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. I will be gracious. This is not about Moses or the faithfulness. It's about what God is deciding himself. He chooses to show Moses grace by revealing himself at all. 
He is not obligated. We don't get this. We feel like we've done some good things. This is where self-righteousness and legalism come. We do some good things and we're like, all right, God, I've earned heaven now. I've earned this. I've been a good person. Give it to me. We don't realize that, A, we haven't earned squat, and he is not obligated to give us anything. But by grace, he does, whether we are faithful or faithless. He acts out of his own character and nature, choosing to forgive an unworthy, unlovable people who will sin again. And the awesome thing is, he loves us, though he's not loved back, because it brings him glory. By him loving his enemy, by him loving someone who doesn't deserve it, it speaks volumes about the love and the graciousness and the goodness of God of which he is most concerned about proclaiming. It glorifies him to do that. But the strange thing is that instead of revealing his wrath, he tells Moses, I'm going to reveal my goodness to you. And I'm always thinking, like, did Moses feel like shorted? In that moment, like, I'm going to show you my goodness. And he's like, okay, dude, last time we talked about glory, we had like plagues and like destruction and like hail balls, like this size. And you're going to show me good goodness? I mean, that, that's cool. I like that. But it's like just goodness. But the beauty of it, and I was... As I was walking, I've been, I was telling, I've been walking a lot lately because my Camry, my 200,000 mile plus Camry got destroyed when I got rear-ended on Highway 9. So I've been doing a lot of walking lately. And I was actually joyful to Jesus when it got hit. As soon as it got hit, I was like, yes! I jumped out. Please be destroyed. Please be destroyed. I look. And I'm not really sure. It could be like just a God-glorifying, awesome thing. But I've been walking a lot because I don't have a car. And... As I was walking, God just kind of was uh, just dialing, goodness, goodness, why goodness? Why not glory? Because he seems to kind of modify. He doesn't really deny I'm not going to show him my glory. He just kind of modifies it a little bit. You're like, why would he show him his goodness? That just seems kind of like not as, what's going on here? But what blew my mind is this thought, is that he's going to walk by and show his goodness, his grace and his mercy and reveal himself and declare himself his goodness before Moses. But in order to do that, he has to put him in the cleft of the rock and, and restrain or protect him, restrain himself and protect Moses from revealing his goodness. And we talk a lot about God's wrath and, and you know how we could stand in, in God's wrath and those kind of things. But think about God can't even reveal his goodness to us fully. God's goodness, forget the wrath for a second and the glory in that sense, and just His goodness, if He were to expose His goodness to us, it would kill us. And you think about that. If God were to be like, okay, you want me to show me how good I am? It's like, boo, you know, He shows it to you. In that moment, and I know you've had this experience where you see someone who just, you know, they're really good, at least a lot better than you, right? They're really good. And you admire them for their goodness, and you're like, man, that's just a good person. Well, imagine perfection. And in that moment, before you die, you are shown your own brokenness, your own cruelty, your own, you feel shame because, not because of, yes, you're sinful, but because of the goodness sitting before you. And it's so good, so righteous, so wonderful. In comparison to our own brokenness, he has to protect his people, in this case Moses, from seeing it. But in that moment, he also shows Moses how actually good he has to be to be in relationship with him. We don't got a chance. I don't got a chance. My, my goodness, even my little bit of goodness ain't going to even hurt anybody. And we got the the Jesus dying for our sins part, really down good, right? I mean, we're really good at being super prideful about the bad things we, we don't do and being forgiven for those bad things that, you know, we've done. But we forget all the good things that we never do. 
I don't hate, but do you love? Even if Jesus dies on the cross, which he does for your sins, in your place, dying the death for you, and forgiving you as God forgave Israel, and doesn't pour his wrath on Israel, but pours it on another substitute, we're still at neutral. I'm still not good enough to be with God. And what we forget is all the time up and to the cross. The perfect, sinless life, the good, the only good life ever lived in complete, perfect obedience to God, in perfect love with God, God the center, that life is given to you. It should bring us joy to know that, A, I'm never going to make it, and God knows that, but He doesn't just leave me there. And all the brokenness, even after I became, if you are a Christian, that didn't stop you from sinning, is my guess. Didn't work for me. I began to feel much different about my sin, and my desires changed. But I still realize, even though I'm washed in the blood of Jesus, I'm still not good enough unless that life is given to me. Unless when I stand before my Father, I go, I got nothing. But Jesus both paid for the sins that I did, and He lived the goodness I was supposed to. And it's in Jesus that we see this goodness completely revealed, and not just from a distance, hey, that's really good, I wish I could be that. He comes, and He dwells in our hearts, and we put on Christ so that God looks down on you. For those who are covered in the blood of Christ, He sees the goodness of His Son. You are adopted as a son in a relationship way more intimate than Moses and God ever had. Where we sit with our Father and He knows our brokenness and He loves us. This entire passage reveals to me that we bring nothing to the table. And God does everything. He is so good. I just want to close with one passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 59. And they will take communion and celebrate what Jesus has done for us because of what we couldn't do. I'm going to read just the first part of it and then the last part of it because the entire chapter pretty much is a resume of our sin. First two verses says this in Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your And my iniquities, our sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And then it goes on, if you read the rest of Isaiah, describing our sin. Our works are works of iniquity. Our feet run to evil. The way of peace we do not know. There is no justice in us. We grope for a wall like the blind, and it goes on and on until it gets to verse 15 at the end. It says this, The Lord sought, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. And He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then His own arm brought Him salvation, and His righteousness upheld Him. That's what we celebrate. We declare every Sunday and every day as individuals and as a church that we are more sinful than we would ever admit, but more loved than we could possibly imagine. That God makes it possible for us to have relationship with Him through His Son. And if we accept that relationship, we confess that we are sinful, He gives it to us freely. Freely. And we live in freedom and joy, not trying to be good, but we recognize we're not good. He gives us goodness, and we respond out of love to honor Him and what He did. I pray today that God's goodness will come alive to you in a way that maybe has in a long time. Let's pray. Father God, we give You glory for Your goodness. We give You glory for all that You have done to bring us back to You. We pray, Father, today in the hearts of 
all who are here that we will confess anew our sins to you, our sinfulness to you, and declare the wonder and the goodness that is you bringing us back and clothing us with your Son. Father, do not look at my brokenness. Forgive me and fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with the Spirit of Christ. Help me to live in such a way that's honoring you. Father, help me to move or not move without your presence and to give you glory with every breath that I have left on this earth. May you receive honor and praise for what we give and what we sing. May your Son be glorified. Amen. Please stand and respond with us.
As we uh, go out today and um, return to our lives uh, outside this church, God, may we continue to have faith in you, Lord. May we uh, rest assured in knowing that you go with us, that we are never alone, that we are never outside of your grace. We cannot be hurt as much as we are loved. God, you are amazing. You are all-powerful, and you never fail to provide for us.